We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, Editorial Director of Acres USA, and I'm thrilled to bring you this interview with Kathleen Merrigan. She's one of the keynote speakers at our upcoming EcoAg conference in Minneapolis, and she's kind of a big deal. She was instrumental in crafting the Organic Foods Production Act in 1990. That's the law that established organic food standards in the U.S. She also served as the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Agriculture during the Obama administration. She spearheaded the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food program at the USDA, and last year she was named as the first executive director of the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems at Arizona State University. She previously served as executive director of sustainability at George Washington University, and she was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine in 2010. As you'll hear, she has a lot to say about the true cost of food and the future of organic farming. She has a big vision for a food system that takes into account biodiversity, human health, water quality, climate, and waste. We'll talk to Kathleen here in a minute, but first a word from our sponsor. You are listening to the Tractor Time Podcast. We are proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for just a rototiller, but with gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. With PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, chippers and shredders, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a high-pressure irrigation pump, BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. Even on large farms where a four-wheel tractor is a necessity, BCS two-wheel tractors will tackle jobs that simply can't be done with larger machines, from mowing steep slopes and along pond banks to working soil and high tunnels and hoop houses. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. Hey, it's Ben. One more brief interruption before we get to the interview. Kathleen will be one of our keynote speakers at the EcoAg Conference and Trade Show in December, but she isn't the only speaker. In fact, the four-day event will feature over 30 shorter sessions and keynotes to choose from on topics like soil health, animal agriculture, human health, plant nutrition, and much more. The conference also offers social mixers, panels, and access to a really amazing trade show. And we can't forget about EcoAg U, which gives attendees a really in-depth look at specific farming tactics in an all-day workshop setting. It really is an incredible lineup. Go to acresusa.com for more information. And without further ado, here's Kathleen Merrigan. Walk us through your life in agricultural policymaking. And I also really want to know specifically how you originally became passionate about our food system. I grew up in Western Massachusetts, farming area, mixed vegetables, dairy, and I grew up next door to a farm, a farm that was sold when I was in high school and it became commercial property. A gas station was put there among other things and so I became very aware of the issue of farmland loss. My parents were school teachers. Uh, They were engaged in politics. I went into politics right after I graduated from college. And the state senator I worked for, one of the first things we confronted was a water crisis in a small rural town where farmers had used pesticides absolutely according to label, um, but it had gotten into their wells, their well water. And they were told, not only should we not be drinking this water, you shouldn't even shower in it. And so I saw the destruction of a rural community because of pesticides. And I could have gone in a lot of different directions in my career, probably. um, I've always been very interested in poverty alleviation, for example. But uh, I saw food and agriculture as a place to invest my energies. And so really from the very start of my career, 
I've been involved in food and agriculture and it's been um, a very rewarding career. What was it like to assume the role of, of Deputy Secretary of Agriculture? That's a hugely important role. Was that nerve wracking? Was that overwhelming? I'm just curious what that experience was like being operating at the highest levels of, of US government um, on food policy. Yeah, well, it was a privilege um, to have the opportunity to lead in that way in this country, 110,000 employees, $150 billion budget. I was a chief operating officer, but it gave me an opportunity to try to help out issues and constituencies that I cared about my entire career. And it was, um, it, it, yeah, it was, it was really a huge amount of pressure. I, um, I worked incredibly long hours. I was in the situation room um, all the time because a lot of decisions of the federal government are actually made in deputy committees where the deputies across the federal departments get together and, and decide things. So uh, yeah, big, big, big job. I made it a little over four years and I learned a lot. So in the 90s you were developing standards for organic certification and, and other things. Tell us that story. I'm, I'm fascinated by how that all played out. And I, I would love to hear really what the climate was like at that time. So I was hired by Pat Leahy, the senator from Vermont. And I was given a portfolio of work that had to do with sustainability. And that's always been a hallmark of my work. That's great. I didn't foresee writing a law on organic standards, but actually it was uh, the organic um, community that came knocking on my door wanting a national law. Though doing so very cautiously with a lot of anxiety because the federal government had been no friend to organic agriculture. At one point in my career, I had the joy of working for Garth Youngberg who established the Institute for Alternative Agriculture, no longer exists. But he, um, he was actually an economist at USDA who was fired for authoring a study on, on organic farming. So there had been this history of USDA being very um, dismissive at best of organic. But why the farmers decided they needed a national law was for a few reasons. One the number of states and private entities that had their own standards um, was growing. At the time the law passed, I think there were 43 different standards in place across the country. And so there were problems with interstate commerce because what was organic in Vermont wasn't necessarily what was organic in Washington state and, and so on. So there was a need for a common standard for growth in the industry. There was also a concern that there were new entrants into the organic space that weren't steeped in the value system and the history. And it was uh, in part because there was a scare about a particular pesticide, Alar, that had been used. And Meryl Streep, the famous actress, uh, was very vocal on this. And and it, it erupted in what people described as the panic for organic. So people, all of a sudden, there was this huge demand from consumers for organic, uh, much greater than ever before. And it was a lure for new people to come into the organic sector. Now, that can be good, but there was anxiety that without standards, it could also be bad. During that time, there it seems like there was a lot of momentum developing. I remember as a college student, during that time, late, later in the 90s, really becoming aware of organic food, of farm to table, of, you know, that was popularized in large part by Michael, Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. You, you played a large role in sort of kickstarting that. So how do, you, how do you see it developing over time from the 90s, early 90s, when those new standards are being implemented nationwide to today? Well, I, I should say right up front, I get a lot of credit for having been the, you know, essentially the handmaiden for that legislation 
But what was a real hallmark of that effort was that it was very participatory in terms of figuring out what we wanted in the law. And it involved consumer groups, environmental groups, as well as all the different um, parts of the organic community. And I went around the country and I had meetings with people and we really worked it out as a, a, a coalition of people. And that's why the bill passed remarkably fast. What I worry about these days is there's a fracturing, not just within organic itself, like my organic's better than your organic, um, uh, I'm authentic organic, and all of this sort of fracturing around potential market claims. But also we don't have the same sort of investment relationships with environmental and consumer groups that we once had. And I think for organic to continue to succeed, we have to rebuild that coalition. We have some challenging times right now with this administration, particularly the rollback on the organic animal welfare law. And, and we really need the clout of those environmental and consumer groups to put the wind in the sails for the organic community to succeed. I read somewhere that you said you feared that the food movement was in danger of becoming a circular firing squad. Explain what you meant by that. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm very um, excited to look at data on the Organic Trade Association. They did a thing a couple years ago with Nielsen to try to figure out uh, to what extent have Americans actually purchased an organic product over the course of the year. I think it's something like 83% of Americans. I just moved to Arizona. It's not a, it's not a blue state. Um, I like to think it's purple, but um, in Arizona, 90% of, of citizens say that they've purchased at least one organic item. So that sounds, that sounds like we're really making great strides. And yet, and yet, there is really, it's still a small market. And it's still inaccessible to a lot of people. And it's still misunderstood. I just worry times that we are in an echo chamber and we worry about perfection in that 95 to 100 percent range when we've got all of this other stuff and all of these people we want to enlist in this really um, very important sustainability movement. Um, so is a circular firing squad. I certainly have used that and I've applied it in specific instances, but I just don't want to have the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I want people to recognize how far the organic community has come over the years and largely on the shoulders of some incredible leaders who invested incredible time, energy, almost blood into getting us to where we are today. Recently, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Purdue said the big are going to get bigger and the small farmers are going to go away. It's kind of a, a rehash of the infamous Earl Butts mantra, get bigger, get out. H how do you feel about that? Well, statistically, he's not wrong. Maybe a, a caveat, a little change to what he said. We, we talk about the disappearing middle. And we're certainly seeing that in the countryside where the middle guys are having the hardest time surviving. The little guys are oftentimes direct marketing. Um, they have a niche somehow. And we're seeing actually the really small scale farmers growing in numbers. Just looking at you know, the census of agriculture, which USDA does every five years. And certainly the big guys are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm sad about that, and the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative was really trying to find ways to help small and mid-sized operations get a foothold and be successful in American agriculture. It wasn't, I mean, it was under the umbrella of supporting local and regional food systems, but really the goals were bigger than that. It really was about having this way of supporting a lot of people who want to get their hands in the soil and succeed in their communities 
and be a part of that social fabric that's so important if you especially in, in rural areas where we see out migration happening quite seriously. So um, I, the secretary is not wrong in saying that. The question for all of us is, what do we do about it? And I'm particularly concerned, again, about uh, that next generation of farmers and ranchers and how we get them on the land. And organic can be a really important opportunity there because uh, particularly if you're doing uh, specialty crops, you can um, do that on small acreage and make a go of it. And so that is a great place to bring new entrants into American agriculture because we know a lot of these young farmers, they didn't grow up on the farm. They're not inheriting the farm. They um, have to buy expensive machinery. We all understand the capital costs of going into American agriculture. So how do we uh, help these young people who, who are oftentimes graduating from college and wanting to take up farming? How do we provide a toolkit and market support so they can succeed? Organic, to me, is part of the answer. Well, tell us a little bit about the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food program. What was the genesis of that and, and what, in your estimation, did it accomplish? The real goal of Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food, in my mind, was to open USDA's doors wider to a broader constituency. Government, especially at the federal level, is sort of like a black box. I mean, you have, uh, at that time at, at USDA, we had 17 agencies and uh, hundreds of programs. And a lot of times, the people who were the beneficiaries of the programs it was the same people over and over again. And part of that, you might say, oh, it's a conspiracy. You know, it's like so-and-so knows so-and-so, they scratch their back. A lot of it is because a lot of people don't know how to access those programs. You do not get the grant. You do not get the prize at the end if you don't put your name in the raffle, right? So what I was trying to do with that was to demystify government for a whole lot of people who had never gotten into the game. So yes, it was about local and regional, but it was about access. And as a lot of people know, the, the USDA was set up by Abraham Lincoln. He referred to it as the People's Department. Secretary Vilsack, I was his deputy. He was very reminiscent about that and said, we really need it to be the People's Department. I remember he gave all of us in leadership an etching of Abraham Lincoln to remind us of that. So that was really important. And, and there were people who I met when I traveled around the country who had never met a secretary of agriculture, a deputy secretary of agriculture, an undersecretary of agriculture, an administrator of agriculture. And it was just important for me to do that kind of outreach, it was joyful to try to help communities get access. I hope that the initiative will have a legacy in that regard. Well, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now at Arizona State University. Yeah. So one of the things I really like about Arizona State University is our president, Michael Crow, who recruited me. And one of the things he talks about quite uh, persuasively, I'll warn you already, I've drunk the Kool-Aid here, is that there are all these colleges and universities across the country who are so proud that they only accept 4% of applicants or 6% of applicants. And he says, that's nothing to be proud about. What we should be proud about is opening our doors wider here at the university and then measuring our success by how well those people do. Uh, so it's a very... Uh, inclusive environment, really focus on trying to bring on people who have um, not necessarily been part of the largesse in academia. We have a high percentage of first-gen college students. And for me, that's exciting. I've always said about food policy in particular, I think it's naive to think that food policy is going to change if we don't change the faces around the table to better reflect the demographics of this country. And, and what role are you taking on there at ASU? 
So I'm a director of a research center. It's called the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems. And I'm also a professor. So we just launched a Bachelor of Science degree in Sustainable Food Systems, a graduate certificate in Food Policy and Sustainability Leadership. And then next fall, the fall of 2020, we'll launch a master's degree in Sustainable Food Systems. In terms of our research, we're focused a lot on organic. We're doing a project right now with Natural Resources Defense Council on a report on, on organic. I think it will come out in the spring next year. I'm excited about that. We are working on true cost accounting, trying to put a value on the externalities of food production, both positive and negative, so that decision makers, whether they're in government or in the private sector, have a transparency. And whether they, they want to look or not, they'll have full information when they make the decisions about our food and agriculture system. We are working on what I like to call the power of deliciousness. And this is working with chefs like Dan Barber, who um, I adore up in New York State, trying to figure out how to make the sustainable choice most delicious choice. And um, one of the things Dan always talks about is, you know, think about grass-fed beef. Some people say at the end of it, you know, I don't know, it kind of tastes like a little tough. And, and then he reflects, he's like, well, you know, we spend all this time raising a grass-fed animal, but then when it comes time to uh, slaughter, butchering, aging that meat, we do the exact same thing as if it were a grain-fed animal. And we need to develop that whole other array of handling um, that animal and so that it delivers the power of deliciousness and motivates the consumer to, to choose what's best for the planet. Because only so many people are going to do what's best for the planet for their personal health and for the health of the planet. We really have to capture that joy in food. And then the final thing that we're really working on, and you're wondering, is she ever going to take a breath? Um, but the final area that we really focus on is also working with private industry. You know, there's not a lot going on at the federal level right now in terms of congressional action. There's a lot of deregulation going on in the rulemaking uh, arena, which breaks my heart. But uh, we see that there's a lot of new entrants in food and agriculture, new entrepreneurs. Uh, and also some of the big guys are trying to shift their behavior. Uh, the Sustainable Food Policy Alliance, which is Unilever, Danone, Mars, and Nestle, breaking off from grocery manufacturers saying, our customer base wants more progressive policy. So how can we at the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems help empower uh, entrants, both large and small in the private sector, move the agenda forward in this time when Secretary Purdue may be more focused on large farms. You've talked extensively about taking a more holistic approach to food, one that takes into account biodiversity, human health, water quality, climate, food waste. I'm, I'm really interested in hearing more about something you've called the true cost of food. So I've got involved with the United Nations Environment Program initiative called TEEB AgriFood. So if you go to the website, it's just teebweb.org. Find a lot of materials there. And this was an effort to bring about a methodology to um, put a value on these externalities. And it involved in the first phase 150 scholars from 33 different countries. Um, I was rare as an American um, going to try to have this full food systems view of what it takes to, to put some food on that plate and also the waste after that plate. So um, this work carries on. The Global Alliance for the Future of Food, which is a, a collection of philanthropies, they're funding some work in uh, true cost accounting and they're trying to build a community of practice. So that would be a place for people to go, their website to, to find more information. We'll talk a little bit more about food waste. I think it's a huge but often overlooked part of our food system. What's really interesting to me about food waste was that I've been in public policy jobs and academic jobs 
around food and agriculture for years and years and years, and nobody was talking about wasted food. And all of a sudden, it just popped on the agenda. And how did that happen? And we know now that from the FAO report that if um, food waste were a country, it'd be the third largest emitter of um, greenhouse gas emissions. We know that 40% of food is wasted, very different places along the chain, if you're in a developing country versus a developed country. And I don't think those figures take into account bycatch in fisheries. So that would even increase the, the percentage from 40%. But it's really interesting to me that now, while we have haven't really come up with a lot of solutions to this problem yet. I'm optimistic because everyone's talking about it. I have been told that part of the way it got on the agenda was that FAO and, and, and people interested in wasted food went to uh, industry that was in the packaging area, a big conference, and they talked about it. And some of these industry guys saw a business opportunity out of it. And that's how, in some ways, it bubbled up to uh, a number of important people's attention. So again, that goes back to one of the Sweetie Center's focus areas is how to empower and use industry to good end. The wasted food stuff is, um, GAO just came out with a report um, this month. Uh, I love going to the ReFed website and all of um, the information that's there. World Wildlife Fund is expanding a, a very important uh, curriculum in schools. Uh, they started in the DC area. One of my students worked on that, uh, worked with her on that. And now it's, uh, it's going to several different cities, including Phoenix. Shelley Pingree has important legislation uh, that hasn't passed hasn't crossed the finish line on um, dating of, of food. So there's a understanding of what real, really you can't eat, what's a real ex expiration date as opposed to maybe it tastes a little better by this date kind of thing. So there's a lot out there that we can do. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm really thinking that this is um, something that in not too long a time, we'll see some incredible solutions. And that is so important because when every, whenever I go to a meeting um, around food and agriculture, it sort of has this mantra. Um, I don't agree with it, by the way, but this mantra that, oh, we have to increase world food production by 70% because of the growing population by 2050. And that doesn't really convince me because one, if we could solve the food waste problem, it'd make a huge difference. Two, there are a lot of issues around women empowerment because the world's farmers are women. That's not true so much in the United States, but around the globe it is. And FAO says, if, in the World Bank says, if you empower women by giving them equal access as men to education, leadership opportunities, uh, resources, world food production would increase by 30%, which is the equivalent of feeding 150 million people a day. And then you've got all these issues around governance and corruption. And uh, there's a lot of things that we can do around food production. And the waste example is such a poignant example that um, makes me believe that these projections that we have to increase food production by 70% are just uh, off by magnitudes. You often hear some people say that organic agriculture can't feed the world. Do you agree with that? Not at all, not at all. And I think it speaks to what you're talking about with food waste, that there's so much of it that it's really a, maybe a matter of distribution than it is method. Well, I also think that's based on um, early on uh, data that was collected that just wasn't all that rigorous we look at the Rodale Institute, for example, and they have the really long-term trials, side-by-side -side, conventional versus organic production. And we see that when you have a healthy soil, uh, there is, um, over time, uh, the organic can do better than the conventional. We are seeing uh, some sort of epiphany now about the importance of soil health. And that is, 
in part because people are finally connecting the need to do better around food systems with climate change. So the recognition that the food and ag sector is a huge contributor to climate change in the negative way, but also has the potential to be a real contributor in terms of solving climate change in, in terms of particularly uh, carbon sequestration in soils. So organic is the, is the poster child for that and what farmers have been doing over the decades. So yeah, I don't agree that organic can't feed the world. I understand that sometimes uh, organic doesn't work in certain places. It's much easier to grow an organic apple in Washington state than where, when, where I'm from in Western Massachusetts. Uh, so it, it's not always doable or easy and depending on the crop and the season and all of that. But I'm all in for organic. I, I yeah, I challenge those people who say that. Well, I think at the time when that criticism was being leveled, the consciousness about organic farming was really sort of about the lack of pesticide inputs. Now that's sort of shifting, the conversation is shifting towards soil health. And, you know, when it comes to organics, food labeling and certifications are important to be sure. But how do we transform the food system to create soil health and biodiversity? That seems to be the next generation of this movement. Yeah, and you know, the thing that's sort of um, unresolved is around tillage. So this has always been a, a problem for USDA NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service employees who have generally not been particularly pro-organic because they have been taught no-till. They, you know, they've sworn on the no-till Bible. And we do lose we do lose precious topsoil, um, but organic soils are soils managed organically have a lot of um, a lot of strengths. So I know there's a lot of talk about a tillless organic agriculture. I think those conversations we all need to roll up our sleeves and have them. I'm not sure I have a firm opinion one way or the other. I've been I've witnessed uh, organic farming where there's tillage going on and it seems very, very healthy to me, but I understand the concerns. And I think that's where the conversation needs to be right now. Wendell Berry famously said that eating is an agricultural act and Michael Pollan sort of took that a step further and said it's a political act as well. What do those ideas mean to you and do you even agree with them? Oh, I totally agree with them. And I will say Wendell Berry is the only um, public official, and I've met presidents and first ladies and presidents of other countries. Wendell Berry is the only person I've completely threw dignity out the window and fawned over him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a real, he's a real hero of mine. And I often uh, quote that, eating is an agricultural act, that there is uh, opportunity for all of us to be deliberate about our choices of what we put on our plate. It's a political act. I agree with Michael Pollan on that. I also think it's, um, I like to think of it as a community act. So what I really like uh, around the country now in some restaurants, I'm seeing the reintroduction of community tables where you're not sitting with your one plate with your one dining partner, but you have opportunity to have conversations across the table with people that you didn't necessarily come to the joint with. And how do we um, go back to more family style meals where the meal is a coming together of community exchange fellowship? I think that's something that really excites me. I don't always know how to ferment that, but it, it, is, uh, it is something that I hope chefs across the country are thinking about. I imagine you're a fun person to go to the grocery store with. Um, what, when you buy your food, how do you do it? What do you look for? I imagine you're, you're among the most well-informed consumers out there. What's that like for you? Well, I'll be honest. First of all, my husband does most of the grocery shopping. He's the chef in the family. Mm -hmm. And 
allowed me to dodge this question over many years. <laughs> <laughs> but when I do go to the grocery store, I'm like every shopper. I'm sensitive to price. I'm sensitive to appearance. I, though, know a lot of the, I've been lucky enough, I've visited over a thousand farms at this point in my career. I've visited most of the major companies that produce food. So I, I, I actually do know a lot of the people behind the food. And sometimes I shop companies. Um, I am, you know, a big fan of Organic Valley. And uh, I like that it's a farmer cooperative. And so, you know, when I'm looking at my eggs or my butter or my milk, they may end up top in my uh, grocery cart because I like their structure of their organization. So there are a lot of different elements that go into what I end up putting in my grocery cart on any particular day. By the way, we're about to, in November, so this, um, I don't know when your story airs, but we're going to be hosting an event in Washington, D.C. On, uh, on cooperatives, the history of cooperatives currently, how are they working, what potentially can be the future of cooperatives in American agriculture. Because I think a lot of young people coming into the sector don't know that history and may not know about the opportunities such a structure provides. Well, speaking of grocery shopping, if you go to Whole Foods today, there's an array of quote unquote organic junk food. And, and a new study recently suggested that hyper-processed foods might be the culprit behind our obesity epidemic. From a policy standpoint, how do we address the role of hyper-processed foods, even organic ones, that the, the role that those foods are playing in diminishing human health? So there'll probably always be uh, Cheetos, cheese that goes crunch and uh, I don't know, I could go through all my favorite junk foods. There'll probably always be those foods, and I hope if there are going to be those foods that they can be organic. Some people think that's oil and water. I think of what the environmental and social benefits are to having that produced organically. That said, I love what happened in Brazil around their dietary guidelines. So here in the United States, we put out dietary guidelines every five years, and the... Um, the last one I was involved with ended up with myplate.gov, where the message was half plate fruits and vegetables. I enjoyed that. But I was also uh, involved in the 2015 debate where we tried to put sustainability in the dietary guidelines and failed. We were inspired in part by what we saw going on in Brazil. And what the Brazilians did was they defined a new category of food called ultra-processed. And they advise against eating ultra-processed food very, very sparingly, like, uh, like a super treat. And, and I think that's great. You know, Eskimos, they say, have a million, I don't know if this is true, I've heard this, Laura, they have a gazillion words for snow. I just, I just have snow. And, and we only have one word for processed food. And it's sort of like those baby carrots that you want your kid to eat, they're processed. Um, there, you know, a lot of different food that's really good for you and we want to be eating and it could be organic processed food. But um, we need to start differentiating in our language, in our shopping, and in our public policy around processed food. I think that would be a great stride forward. What role does technology have to play in the future of food production? Many organic farmers and many people in our audience are deeply skeptical of things like GMOs and of large corporations. What's the future? Well, I think I'm excited about some of the ag tech that's coming in. I don't think there's a reason to uh, dismiss it all. So I am involved a little bit in a venture capital company based in Europe called Astonor. And I'm also an advisor on a, a venture capital company in Chicago called S2G Ventures. And some of the stuff that they're investing in is very interesting, whether it's uh, Beyond Meat, uh, a plant-based alternative. Uh, in, uh, in Europe, we're um, invested in a, a farm that rears a kind of worm that would be used for fish meal and for pet food. I'm all about insect protein, by the way. That's one of my favorite issues. My husband's very anxious 
that I'm sneaking cricket flour into uh, his meals, and he's he's reasonably anxious. That's all I'm going to say on that subject. So I think that there are a lot of things that are going on in technology that are interesting, exciting, have potential. That said, the recent debacle over the MIT food computer, uh, I take as advisory. We have a lot of people going into the food and agriculture sector, investing money, um, trying to take Silicon Valley disruptive thinking and applying it to the food sector, but you have to know about food and agriculture. And I've been a critic of this MIT food computer for a lot of years, and I just didn't think it made any sense. And it turns well, out that it's a hoax if people haven't heard this. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about that. They may not know about that issue. Uh, oh, Lord, it's a sad, sad tale. I, I, um, I got a PhD from MIT, and some people suggested I was not happy about the MIT food computer. Maybe I suggested this because part of it was I had a little post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, coming from a PhD program at MIT. But mm -hmm. anyway, this was the, the MIT, famous MIT Media Lab, and they had developed this food computer, which is literally a box, and they were adjusting the, um, uh, the different, um, you know, climate elements in the box for maximum food production. And it was uh, supposed to help transform the food system. Uh, you know, I thought at best it might engage young people in discussions around food and agriculture because of the computer aspect. Um, but I did, it was just so also silly to me, but they got tens, they got tons of money. Some of it was from um, Epstein and that's not good. Uh, but apparently they were they don't work and they were switching out plants before donors arrived on the scene um, because they just didn't work and so it's just it's raised a lot of issues in, at MIT and I'm sure across the university space about integrity and ethics and how do you really know something's working when you're out there promoting it so anyhow my point here is that we need people to be uh, well-grounded in food and agriculture so that these investments are well-made. Because tech, for tech's sake, tech seems sexy. I get it. But we really want to figure out what are the investments, what are the efforts going forward that really do, do make a difference. Well, so the big debate lately has been about the role that gene-edited crops might play in organic agriculture, and a lot of people are taking pretty strong positions on this. What are, you, what are your views on that? So I'm not anti-gene genome editing. Um, I've never been anti-biotech, but here's the thing. I think we need a strong regulatory regime oversight of genome editing. Uh, we are still working with the coordinated framework that was established by Dan Quayle in 1986. Uh, the technologies have evolved, grown far, it's far different scene than it was in 1986. And we need to uh, have a regulatory system that is able to make sure that what decisions are made are, are good ones. The difference between something like CRISPR and the old recombinant DNA technologies is that this is something that potentially someone could do in their garage. So even more reason for, for regulatory oversight. Now, I know that is not with the times in Washington, D.C. right now, but that's what I think. Talk a little bit about that. What are your views of what's happening in agricultural policy right now under the Trump administration? You said earlier, you used the word heartbroken. What do you, what do you mean by that? And what are you seeing that's giving you pause? Well, heartbroken in so many different ways. A lot of it because of a lot of the things that we worked so hard on during the Obama administration are being dismantled uh, in the regulatory sense. Heartbroken because farmers are on the front lines of climate change and we have a administration that doesn't want to acknowledge climate change where scientists who are working on solutions to climate change have to do so in the dark because they can't let anyone even know they're working on such things. 
um, heartbroken because a lot of our farmers depend on overseas markets and the, uh, the different kinds of trade wars have really taken a toll on American agriculture. Uh, heartbroken because we still, and this was a problem the Obama years too, we still have a lack of immigration reform so that a lot of farm enterprises and not just really large ones, a lot of midsize and smaller farms as well depend upon uh, farm labor of, from people from other countries. And we did see a little bit of effort on H2A regulations recently, but we know that um, some American industry is just closing shop because uh, they can't get a legal workforce. They don't want ICE knocking on the door. And that means that if we don't resolve that problem, more and more of our food is going to be imported. And I don't think that's good. So I'm heartbroken. Yeah, that's my statement for the day. I want to return for a moment back to investment. Um, talk about how a little more about how big dollar investors are starting to take notice of the need to transform our food system. And what are the positive effects and what are the negative effects of that? Well, I mentioned that I work at the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems. Well, the Sweeties, who um, provided the endowment for this center, just developed uh, what uh, called the Awesome Burger, which is a plant-based burger. And it's um, being produced and it will be sold by Nestle. I think that's good. I think that all the projections are that if we continue to consume meat, in the way that we are currently, and particularly when you look at um, other parts of the world's economies improving, and when that, those economies improve, meat consumption goes up, the, the consequences are dire. So the idea that big companies are investing in alternative proteins, I think is excellent. Now, my favorite meal, honest to God, is steak. So not saying that everyone needs to be a vegetarian or a vegan, but reducing meat consumption and figuring out ways of doing that uh, and, and keeping an eye to enjoyment of food, I think is really wonderful. What are the downsides of big, big players? Well, I just finished uh, a seven-month uh, stint at Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, where I was a pitching in in a, trans, a leadership transition period. And one of the things that I've been involved with up there that I really like is this effort to have a slow tools meeting every year and uh, actually come up with some maker space so that people who are engineering oriented can work with farmers to figure out small tools, tools that fit a small enterprise to figure out how to get them to those farmers appropriate to their operations. It's not something that Caterpillar is going to do necessarily or John Deere or what, you know, because they need a certain amount of market share to make that R&D worth it and to make the marketing scale, you know, it's, it's not a scale at which it's of use to them. So, as we've seen consolidation in the agricultural realm, sometimes the needs of the small guys are, are just not on the screen for people. And so uh, that's when you have an NGO Stone Barn Center doing something like that. You, you briefly touched on um, sort of the debate that's going on right now about meat and meat consumption. And maybe this sort of harkens back to the concept of the circular firing squad. But you have people on one side who are saying our, the, the, the way in which we are currently producing and consuming meat is, a, is a, a public health disaster. And then on the other side, you have people like, you know, grass-fed beef farmers or ranchers who are saying, wait a minute, we're creating an ecosystem here. We're sequestering carbon in the soil we represent an alternative to sort of the industrial model that is creating so many sort of environmental and health related problems. What do you say to that? I, ideally, we would have recalibration of livestock numbers and locations where they're raised 
So it would match farmland needs. So you really would have that circular, um, not a circular firing squad, excuse me, but uh, a circular sense in terms of sustainability because, you know, animals on the land at appropriate scale really makes the system work and makes it so you don't have to have added um, nutrients to the land uh, in, in terms of synthetic fertilizers or what have you. So I just think again, that means eating less meat and trying to figure out system-wide how we get away from large CAFOs with huge um, methane digesters, better to have a digester than not, I get that, to an to a, a, a integrated livestock crop operation that hits and rings all the sustainability bells. So a shift in the way that we eat, I, I've, I've read somewhere that you're a big proponent of pulses. Is that correct? Um, uh, yes. <laughs> is yes. that, is that, that's part of the future of, of food in America and elsewhere? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So pulses, um, really important, uh, it can be a protein source, but it's also, um, so important to the land to have pulses and, the problem is, and this again is where our chefs can come in and where some of these new entrepreneurs can come in, is that uh, when farmers want to have a really healthy crop rotation, it's sometimes multiple crops over multiple years, and all of those crops need to have a market. And so building out knowledge about pulses, consumer products, that feature pulses, talking about pulses, I'm all in. That makes so much sense for the health of the planet and the health of the human body. And you mentioned sort of the chef's role in sort of creating that demand for foods like that. And that sort of brings me back to Dan Barber and the work that he's doing. I wanted to talk more about him. And for our listeners who don't know who he is, check out his book, uh, The Third Plate. It's a really important work. I think Dan is like one of the more interesting thinkers in our country right now on on our food system. And I know you've been in, involved in the work that's being done at the Stone Barns Center. I would love to hear more about the work that he's doing. And, and also, I'd love to hear more about the power of deliciousness, because I think it's a really compelling concept. Yeah. So I've been involved with Dan and Stone Barns Center for, I think it's about 18 years now. <laughs> so it's been a very long time. And he is such an impressive intellect. I make all of my students read The Third Plate, by the way. And um, for people who are listening who may not have read the book, don't worry, it's not some textbook kind of thing that's gonna lecture at you. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. It's writing and it interweaves these stories of people who are producing food, including Klaus Martin, an organic farmer, uh, and his, his wife. So I. I highly recommend it. So I think that Dan and other chefs um, have a voice like never before. So also Jose Andres, who I've worked closely with over the years, and the importance that he's putting on how we feed people in times of disaster, and the voice that he's lending to the issue of cookstoves in uh, developing countries and women's health and the environment and how important that is to change. They have uh, a way of capturing the public's attention that you know old professor Kathleen Merrigan will never have, even though I'm on your very important podcast. So you know, trying to um, figure out who these chefs are and, and, and helping them I, they, Jose and Dan need no help, but chefs have a role in the community where they can be really incredible spokespeople. Here in, um, here in the Phoenix area, we have a, a group of women chefs, and they, they call themselves Blue Watermelon, and they go into the schools, and they do cooking demos in places where there's school gardening curriculum, and they raise money to help change school lunch. And they have a voice and they have a profile in the community that few have. So 
um, there's a lot of opportunity there. And in talking about the power of deliciousness, I think the point that he makes that I find really interesting is that for so long, our food system has selected various crops for reasons that have nothing to do with flavor. It has to do with shelf life. It has to do with uh, hardiness for shipping. Um, he's really sort of trying to flip that paradigm where we're finding heirloom varieties that are delicious and potentially can help transform the entire agricultural system. And that's what I, I find really compelling. Um, and I'm assuming you do as well. Um, but kind of explain what he, he means by that a little bit more. I'm going to give you a friendly amendment, though, to what you said, because I don't think Dan would get too focused on heirlooms, because that's looking back. And he's very much looking forward. You should have him as a guest on your podcast sometime. So I hate to take his thunder, but he was um, really interested in reading for taste. And he went and he visited a professor up at Cornell, Michael Muzurik, and he's a plant breeder. And Michael was really surprised. He said in all his career, he'd never been asked to breed for taste. He'd been asked to breed for yield and, uh, and resistance. And how novel was that? Uh, and so that, that began a long partnership between the plant breeder and the chef. And one of the most exciting meetings I've ever gone to was when Dan brought together some of the most famous chefs in the world and we all sat around at Stone Barns and tried to creatively think about this challenge of taste. Uh, he started a new seed company called Row 7. There's a lot that can be done to, to re-engineer food, and I'm not talking about GMO engineering, but re-engineering food for taste. And, um, and he's, he's at the forefront. Yeah, I think Dan was probably the first chef I ever heard uh, heard mention the word bricks. That's not B-R-I-X for those of you who don't know. Um, just to kind of give our farmer listeners a, a sense of how sort of in deep he is on agricultural issues. Who else, um, aside from Dan and you mentioned Jose, um, who else is doing work that you're really excited about? I really like what's going on at Appeal Biosciences. Are you familiar with them? I'm not. James Rogers is the CEO. We talked a little bit about food waste, and here's an example where tech can be good. He is a PhD scientist. He's a relatively young guy. I think he's 34 years old. Uh, he started this company, and he's developed a way to put a biofilm on produce that extends the life. So if you go to Costco now or Kroger's and you buy an avocado, the biofilms on that avocado and it allows the avocado to, to survive and be fresh for a lot longer. Really inspired by him. There is a, a young woman who CEO uh, of Artemis, which is a Brooklyn-based a company where they're doing a software, a software solution for small, medium-sized growers, some of it indoor ag, Allison Knopf. I think that's really a cool thing to watch. I don't know, I could go on and on about people I admire. In fact, a lot of the people I admire are on the farm, working, toiling every day. I'm really, I'm really anxious about what's going on in the dairy sector right now. And I think of some of my friends and how hard they're working and, and, um, and my, my heart goes out to them. I admire them. I don't know how to help them. They're in crisis. What role do farmers have to play in combating climate chaos? <laughs> well, they have great opportunities on their farms uh, in terms of soil health. And hopefully there's starting to be some building consensus around the need to compensate farmers somehow. Maybe it's a trading scheme like we used to do, what we did with acid rain or wetlands. Um, maybe it's a construction of some other kind of ecosystem market. Maybe it's actually money out the door at USDA. But um, rewarding farmers for environmental stewardship is something that hopefully will happen in not too many years and will be something that is a welcome 
in the farm sector. Remind me your question here again. You have to rephrase it because I, I go. Oh, it, but my question was, my question was, how do we solve climate change? I think. <laughs> so, oh, maybe I'm dodging it because it's such a oh, big. Oh, right, right, right. How do we solve climate change? Particularly through agriculture. Yeah, well, it's, it's really a lot about soils. It's a lot about um, trying to reduce inputs. It's a lot about reducing our livestock numbers. It's a lot about reducing food waste. And if, you know, to the extent that farmers have some control over marketing orders and um, some of those marketing orders in, include different parameters around how the size of what something should be in its appearance, if they can relax those sort of things, um, maybe there's less wasted food. So I think farmers can do a lot. Um, and I think that we need to start having more of those conversations about climate change in, in farm country and do it with, um, with some sensitivities. It's not like there are no good people and bad people. It's, uh, it's a crisis we're all facing. And what I, I know for sure being on a university campus it's just something that's weighing very heavily on young people. They feel very, very anxious about it. So all of us, I'm turning 60 this month. Oh, I'm going to cry. All of us who are older, we have a responsibility, younger generations, to start having these conversations uh, in, with greater urgency and figuring out how the food and agriculture sector can step up. What are you hearing from your students? from these students who are deeply interested in food and agriculture. Are you inspired? What's been your experience so far? So there's this great book, um, I don't have the title exactly right, by Eve Taro called something about Generation Yum. And it's about millennials, her book about millennials, but I think about millennials, I think about Gen X, Gen Z. Younger people have a whole different relationship with food than my generation. They, they see their identity in food, uh, what they buy, where they go to eat, uh, socializing with friends, um, very, very much around identity. And there is this organization in the UK that advises universities, they advise over 100 universities, and they called, I just read a report, they called food the rock and roll of this generation, going into the university. So, they care very deeply about it. But here's one thing I think we really miss the boat on in sustainable agriculture. So many meetings I go to, if they're not doing the mantra, you know, we gotta increase food production by 70% to feed this growing world population. The other thing I hear from a different kind of sort of organization is the food system is broken. I find that the wrong way to start a conversation for several reasons. One, farmers work really hard. Productivity has gone up, price has gone down. Farmers are ingenious. And to say the food system is broken is just really a bad way to start a conversation with farm country. And I, I think that in a lot of ways of the food system works really, really well, maybe too well. It also implies that the food system was at one time not broken, that it was all perfect. I, I don't think that that's true either. And most importantly, I think it is just a doomsday kind of statement that does not attract young people. Young people are, they want to be inspired. They want to have visions of hope. They want to know what to advocate for. They want to say, oh, they want to roll up their sleeves and they want to change things. But if you're just Debbie Downer, negative Nancy, or what have you, and the food system is broken, you don't get them energized. That's what I know. You mentioned earlier that it's the wrong way to start a conversation by saying the system is broken. But I'm curious, how should we be talking about agriculture these days? I mean, the term organic itself has become sort of demystified, sort of made to seem generic. I'm hearing other terms sort of float to the surface now, like regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture. How should we be talking about this? Because these words have meanings, but often it's, it's hard to communicate these distinctions to a general audience. How, how do you go about doing that? How do you have these conversations? Well, I think organic has real meaning, um, 
<laughs> having overseen all of those pages of regulations, uh, stacks and stacks of paper, I know that there are a lot of regulations there. It has meaning. Regenerative, people are very excited about regenerative. We're hearing presidential candidates talk about regenerative agriculture. I mean, you know, you could knock me over with a feather. It used to be you'd, the most they talk about agriculture on the Democratic side, anyhow, is ethanol. Um, maybe a little bit more of that because Iowa is the first caucus. And now we're hearing regenerative. Regenerative hasn't gone through the bruising battle of actually being put on paper in a firm definition that everyone agrees to. So we'll see how that evolves. But again, I think that there's space in the market for multiple claims. I do believe organic is and will continue to be the gold standard claim. Um, but, uh, but this is something that we shouldn't be battling over. One little, this is again, that circular firing squad th thing, you know, my regenerative is better than your regenerative. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, you know, you lost me. Uh, and, mm. and then you leave consumers confused. I've seen that in the organic marketplace where small differences of opinion have been fought out in the front page of the New York Times. And then people say, well, I guess organic doesn't have integrity anymore, or it's, it's a meaningless label. And that's far from true. Other industries don't behave that way. And we have to figure out how to move policy forward and standards forward in ways that we agree to disagree about and, and in a way that doesn't hurt the market. Kathleen, I really appreciate you talking with us today. It's been my pleasure. I, I'm looking forward to coming to the big conference in December. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. There you have it, Kathleen Merrigan. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and BCS America. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.